Hello, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature to its film or television adaptation. My name is Laura Sheher, and I am the overly confident lit expert. Howdy. You might want to keep your distance. I haven't taken up a wash yet. If you're trying to be Sam Elliott, that's highly offensive to this film. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> I was trying to I'm be... I'm kidding. My name, is, my name is Stallion Steve. <laughs> Brother to Bronco Henry. Oh, shit. <laughs> and... <laughs> what do you bring into this podcast? Well, not conversation. I ain't got time for that. I need to go back and tend to the hides. Ain't got time for love. Ain't got time for you. <laughs> it's a throwback to 2014's Burning Love. <laughs> well, my real name is Danny, and I'm the self-appointed film expert. Pronouns he, him. Welcome to Film is Lit. Woo! We have an exciting episode today. That we do. So pumped. This is part two of our series on repressed gay cowboy period pieces. Pretty much. A few weeks ago, we did Brokeback Mountain, took a short break. Now we're back covering one of our favorite films from 2021. Yeah. I mean, is this my favorite film of 2021? I know not yours. There's also Dune. Dune and The Green Knight, which came out, which I know were high up on your list. Green Knight would be hard. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know what I like better. Power of the Dog and Green Knight are probably over Dune for me, but okay. those two are pretty much tied. Right. For me. <laughs> you still Favorite love film. Dune, right? Yes, we still I can do. be married, right? Obviously. <laughs> okay, oh my good. goodness. Because I will give like back. Drafting. He literally is sitting on a stack of divorce papers. If I say anything against Dune, he's like he like lifts him up and he's like. I'll do it. Do it. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is one of our favorites of 2021. Right. And speaking of Dune, it's also quite an awkward situation because we love Dune. We love The Power of the Dog. But The Power of the Dog, nominated for 12 Academy Awards, lost most of the technical categories to Dune. Yeah. And my thought is... Listen, Dune 2 is going to come around and it's going to be nominated for as many categories as it as Dune 1 was, if yeah. not more. Yeah. Hopefully Denis Villeneuve this time. Right. <laughs> right? And as much as I love Dune and I'm so happy that it's a critical commercial success, I think you can give all the Oscars on round two and let other films come in there and kind of share the wealth. I'm not saying give everything away, don't award Dune at all, but maybe an Oscar for the second woman ever to be nominated for best cinematographer well i think you said we were talking earlier and you said off mic that that's what happened with lord of the rings yes they started awarding that and the third franchise movie. yeah after the third movie had come out so they were established but they also didn't continue sweeping and it, yes. it made for a little bit more of an interesting oscar field yeah could you imagine if so the lord of the rings was released 2001 2002 2003 could you imagine that is so just yeah, shocking three years of just and they're full still sweeps. pretty good yeah oh they're yeah. great they but, hold up but, but yeah. yeah to be swept all three actually an interesting crossover with lord of the rings is actually the production designer on power of the dog 
I'm, most people know, but we should say it for the podcast, that this movie was not filmed in Montana, where all of the action, if you can say that any action happens in this <laughs> film, it actually was filmed in the director, Jane Campion's home country of New Zealand. That's Dame. Dame Jane, Jane Campion. Campion. That's right. Thank you for correcting me. Um, <laughs> so this was filmed in New Zealand. And so there are lots of New Z- Kiwis on the production. And Grant Major, who was the production designer on Lord of the Rings, joined Jane Campion for this film, which I thought was pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Amazing production design. You wouldn't think it'd be a movie that was nominated for that. But in the behind the scenes, you realize that the entire Burbank Ranch and Rose's bed and breakfast were all built from the ground up. Incredible. Supplies, furniture were shipped from the States to New Zealand. Netflix, it was cheaper for Netflix to film in New Zealand than it was for them to ship the stuff to Montana, where this story takes place. Again, yeah, another sort of crossover, or I guess similarity with the way that Brokeback Mountain was filmed, because we talked about it in the last episode, how they were filming in Alberta and placed it in Wyoming. But (laughs) what's even crazier, though, is filming took place in the middle of the pandemic, right? Right after quarantine. And still, New Zealand, famously, one of the strictest countries when it When it it came to the shutdown, and currently, just with COVID protocols, they're still pretty hardcore over there. So it still boggles my mind that it was cheaper and less of a hassle to go through all the New Zealand hoops than to shoot in America. So uh, that just kind of shows you the the business here and how America is sitting on a lot of lost opportunities when it comes to the film industry. Anyways. Well, yeah, we've touched on the movie now. We should probably introduce the book a little bit, too, and some background. Do it. So Power of the Dog was published in 1967, written by Thomas Savage, who is now maybe being rediscovered, but is considered by critics as sort of a lost voice in American literature, unfortunately, because it's, it's such a sad reality. I studied literature in North Dakota just a single state away from Thomas Savage's birthplace of Mm -hmm. Montana. And I had not heard of him until Power of the Dog came out. Sure. So I think that's really sort of indicative of how forgotten. And not only Thomas Savage, actually his wife, Elizabeth, was also a pretty prolific writer. Didn't know that. But has not been in the conversation of great American literature ever. Neither of them were very successful when they were living. Which is so strange, because Savage is such a sturdy hardcore american name savage mm-hmm. and and he does like it's it's very american rooted a lot of his topics are very rooted in american history and the american west and a lot of those ideas that i think americans really still cling on to as an identity strangely which i think is really also vital to the conversation about this book mm-hmm. you know Phil Burbank, without getting too deep yet, Phil Burbank has his foot in the past, whereas his brother George has a foot in the future, sort of away from that American life. But these conversations are still very much in the American psyche. So it's really shocking and sad and and also probably harkens back to how uncomfortable Americans are with the conversation of queer literature. Sure. Yeah. 
that's a spot-on analysis of Phil, especially, because he is a man fully stuck in the past. He himself is a man of the past, controlled by not only his past like education and, and upbringing next to George, his brother, but his relationship with Bronco Henry, mm-hmm. which is forever cemented in the past. He's always um, looking back. Because Bronco Henry, sadly... Is, has died by the time we are introduced to these characters. Yeah. So should we go through our individual journeys, which should be pretty quick? Yeah. I can start. Basically, I had never heard of Thomas Savage or Jane Campion before this movie came out. I'm embarrassed to say, but I think this is a good foot in the door mm-hmm. to her work and to Thomas Savage's work. Actually, your mom recently suggested that I read. The Sheep Queen, which he also wrote. So I'm probably going to look into that because she said it was really good. But yeah, I I watched the movie on your suggestion. We watched it together probably right after it came out because yeah. we wanted to... We usually make an effort to see all of the awards, award hopefuls, yeah, I guess, right so after they come out. Released on Netflix in November of 2021. Yeah, and we were blown away mm-hmm. <laughs> when we watched it. And floored. Floored, yeah, really, really taken with the movie. And I think as soon as it popped up, based on the story or novel by Thomas Savage, we're like, we like get onto our computer, okay, gotta add this to the list. Um, it's taken us a while to cover it, but I'm really excited. Again, I hadn't read the book until just a few weeks ago. I think it's really lovely how the movie really captured the tone of the novel. And I'm gonna say that both are fairly slow, but that's not a criticism of both. I think right. it's really amazing to watch the story unfold over not that much time, like maybe a few months. But yeah, just that slow burn, that slow heating of the oven to baking temperature is, oh, it's just one of the most enjoyable things that I've ever right. experienced in both the book and a movie. But that's Yeah, me. I think it could be considered slow because it is just so subtle both Mm -hmm. the book and the movie the book more so than the movie it's a story built on nuances and implications nothing is ever confirmed characters actions are never confirmed people's sexualities are never confirmed you have mountains of evidence that imply something but never once is thomas savage or jane campion being like this is what this man is thinking he's gay and peter killed Phil. Spoilers, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is a full spoilers podcast. Whoops. <laughs> well, no, no, and nothing is confirmed. Nothing is also wasted. Yes. I think it's really incredible to analyze both Brokeback Mountain and Power of the Dog. Brokeback Mountain was a short story, as we discussed, published in The New Yorker, and nothing is wasted in that story. There are probably, like we said in the last episode, probably like 20 lines of dialogue in that very, very condensed story, but you don't feel that it's short. In this, obviously it's much longer. I think it's about 200 or 250 pages, Mm -hmm. but also nothing is wasted. There's no dialogue that doesn't need to be in there. There's no scene that doesn't need to be in there. There's no character that doesn't need to be in there. It's really compact. And it's so interesting to see two writers come at very similar conversations in a different way, but they still have a really, really similar tone. Right. It's really interesting. So anyway, I interrupted your journey. Well, yeah, the audiobook, eight hours, perfect length. 
for an audiobook, in my opinion. The movie is my sweet spot. Two hours. Two hours, eight minutes. I, lo- I love that. That's yeah. like chef's kiss. So this is my first Jane Campion movie as well. I knew of her Oscar-winning movie, The Piano. Mm. Yeah, she won Best Director for that. And right. that was her other night. So she's the only woman to ever win Best Director twice. That's just incredible. Yeah. And I mean, only three women ha- <sighs> have won Best Director in general. Travesty. So, so yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and just as many. I mean, how many have even been nominated? Right. Not and a the, lot. And the Academy Awards have been around for, what, 100 years almost? Just about. We're so. knocking on that door. So, yeah. I knew of the acclaim pretty early on because it had premiered at a film festival and people were going absolutely gaga over it. Critics, uh, not general audiences. <laughs> and then when it premiered on Netflix, by that point it was already very much in the Oscar conversation. Everyone had it at number one on their list to win Best Picture. And then Oscar nomination morning. 12 nominations, including Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Picture. So it, it was pretty much a lock. I knew it was a lock for a while. When we watched this film, we're like, yeah, that's Best Picture worthy. It's not it's not your typical like tour de force, overdramatic, melodramatic type of period piece that usually wins. But it is something that clearly is of a high quality brand. And Netflix has been vying for Best Picture for years now. And uh, I'm just, still in shock that Mank didn't win they Best just, Picture. Yeah, yeah the, our reaction to Mank is similar to Power of the Dog, where it's actually a smaller amount of critics and audiences who love this movie than you'd expect. General audiences kind of found this slow and it's not highly rated slow in the bad way i yes, like yes. i like the slow good yeah way, boring but, like they're right. saying that there's no story and yeah. it's like oh but but look what know. is there yeah yeah um, read the book in the lead up to this podcast and was really taken by it as well i was shocked at how even more understated it is than the movie which is like textbook understated mm-hmm really just absolutely floored by both but especially the movie i mean it is great to see something a story that is so thematically rich brought onto screen it should be said that yeah we both saw the movie first i actually don't know if i read this first if it would have been as enjoyable because Mm. it is so understated and so subtle and the lead up i mean the book, basically, the final sentence is the mic drop, yeah. is the big twist. The final 250-page uh, book doesn't reveal its cards until literally, literally the last sentence. Yeah. So I couldn't. I could imagine reading the book and being bored, honestly. Because you don't know what you're building to. Right. Yeah, I'll be honest. There are not very many movies where the credits roll and I go, huh. I had no idea almost. Actually, you know what it's really similar to? It's actually really similar to how I felt after our first date. Because I just kind of sat in my car for a minute. And I was just like, huh. I don't even know what hit me. And then I went to the hospital because Uh, my hand was infected with anthrax. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Like, there are actually some super weird overlaps. No, just kidding. Um, That didn't happen. Although Danny did tell me not to trip up the stairs on my way to the car. Someone had died (laughs) there. Got to be careful. Anyways. Super funny. You were careful, weren't you? It was really cute. I was. 
I was. So what's the <laughs> and problem? And then I got here? home and I texted you that I didn't fall up the stairs. So anyway, Good. I'm glad. Back to the story. And I say this knowing how pretentious I'm coming off, but there are not a lot of movies where I come out and I don't quite get it, but I know that I loved it. And I truly, honestly cannot say that I completely understood this story the first time that we watched it. Sure. I was really conflicted about how I saw Phil's behavior toward Peter because I thought that it started to look a lot like grooming. I really didn't like that. But then I had no idea that Phil was going to die. Right. That was shocking to me. I didn't make the connection between, again, full spoilers, the anthrax and Phil's death. I truly did not see that connection. And as much as I hated Phil, I was like, good God, you know, did he deserve to die? Like he's, he's obviously a very conflicted character, but I, I didn't put his actions in the context of him being the dog. I, I just, oh, and the scripture, that was impenetrable to me. I think the first thing we did after we shut the television off was we looked up that scripture because neither of us are very well, (laughs) well versed, if you will. Speak for yourself. Right, in the Bible. I'm making a pun, well versed. Flew over my head, continue. (laughs) But but to (laughs) my point, we had to Google that verse because I I think neither of us were really sure what that meant. Uh Uh-huh. So I was, again, I'm being super pretentious here, but I was intrigued by how confused I was. And after doing a lot of research and reading a bunch of interviews, which again, I think maybe is is a lot to ask of an audience member, but we enjoy that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Watching it the second time was so, so fucking satisfying. And rewarding, because there's so many hints. You see so many setups that just fly right under your consciousness when you're watching it the first time. And then the second time you watch it, you're like, of course Peter is wearing latex gloves, mm-hmm. right? Of course X leads to Y leads to Z. Right. Of course. There, so there that are... was, it was just really enjoyable for me to watch a second time. Yeah. And the book doesn't have any of that. There are zero hints in the book that Peter m- might poison Phil mm-hmm. with anthrax. So... Yeah, in the movie, there are a few mentions of anthrax. Earlier on, Phil and Peter chat in the barn about how some calves die around their property. And then when when they die, they don't take the hides because they're tainted. And then another another time, off screen, one of the ranch hands says, uh, uh, don't touch that calf, uh, uh, anthrax. And so I there- I think that's these... even Phil. It's, it's in the beginning, it's in the opening, like 10 minutes of the film. I think mm-hmm. it might be Phil, but we don't know because it's right. a landscape shot. Yeah, I was just absolutely blown away because something I'm pretty good at is predicting the twist of a movie. I'm kind of good at it too, yeah. Yeah, uh, you're you a little better. Movie, you're you a little watch better. enough movies and you just kind of put pieces together. Yeah, but we're like really talented at it. We're, we're like, like super cool. <laughs> um, we have a freaking podcast about movies. <laughs> right, but <laughs> the mic drop in the movie when... Phil is looking for Peter. He's like, "Where's the boy?" Oh and he's look. He has the rope that that he just made for him. And 
Peter stays in his room. And then you start to realize, wait a second, Peter, why wouldn't Peter come out? I thought he was kind of developing a little, like, friendship, maybe more with Phil. Mm -hmm. And then at Phil's funeral, when the doctor comes up to George and says that I have a hunch, I think it was anthrax, George says, that's impossible. Phil has, he never handles tainted cow hides. Mm -hmm. And then you think to yourself, but he did, he took Peter's, and there's that scene earlier where Peter was cutting up a clearly diseased cow. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Peter fucking killed <laughs> Phil. And then yeah. the first, the movie, what's crazy, this is not in the book. The very first line of the movie yeah. is a voiceover from Peter saying, What kind of man would I be if I did not protect my mother? Yep. That's exactly what he did. Phil drove Rose to alcoholism, and alcoholism was killing her. She would have suffered perhaps the same fate as the father, Dr. John Gordon. Mm -hmm. So in the movie, we only get a few lines of exposition saying that, you know, their father was a drunk and had hung himself, and Peter, as a kid, found him and cut him down. In the book, we get a whole backstory. Which I think Jane Campion rightfully cut. Yeah. So yeah, yeah let's let's discuss that uh, big difference. Yeah, there there are a few differences from the book. The first is that we just get a lot more backstory about how Phil has actually been in the lives of Rose and Peter prior to them meeting the opening of the movie. Right. Phil actually insulted Peter in front of Peter's dad, John, at the inn and it so upsets John that he starts to drink and eventually commit suicide. Right. And I think as much as that contributes to the fact that Phil has always been this toxic dog, if you will, mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't further the story in the sense that it only lends a little bit of like legacy to Phil's hatred. But I think by the development that we get through not only the book, but also the movie, considering that whole part was cut out, we already understand that he's been this toxic person because he's struggled with who he is as long as he's been alive. Yeah, His sexuality isn't something that has just cropped up. It's something that he has been embarrassed about for his whole life. So I don't think that we need the backstory as much. I think it's a little bit yeah. of a Again, not a waste of time because it, it's it's interesting to see that Phil can have so much power over someone in just a single passing interaction because it really is just a comment. Right. To some, he has no idea originally that that it was Peter's father that he had sort of inadvertently killed. I would rather spend more time on different things. So yes. that's a big change. Do you have any? Well, other he also on that? Phil also beats John up too. That's right. Which is, yes. again, I would say Phil in the book is like biblically evil. There are plenty of allusions made to the devil yeah. when it comes to Phil. Mm -hmm. In the movie, he is more toxically evil, yeah, if I think, that makes sense. I think you're right. I think there's more of a conversation about how the toxic masculinity environment that Phil has been steeped in just by being in this cowboy rancher environment is directing his anger and his like, uh, like you said, I don't think that I would necessarily call him evil, but I think it's 
it's clear that he's not as much as that like biblical evil. It's the he's the product of the environment and yeah. he's funneling that through himself and where I think Peter and George are different because they can exist in that, but also like assert who they really are and right. be comfortable in it. Phil cannot do that because he thinks that, that, you know, maybe his homosexuality or whatever you want to call it makes him so different and so abhorrent that he can't be that like vulnerable person just to be himself. Um, yeah. And again, you know, like we talked about in the last episode to his to kind of defend him. And I think this is why he's more of a sympathetic character in the movie. Oh, way more. He's, you can't judge him for hiding his homosexuality because as we saw in Brokeback Mountain, what I argued is that Jack is killed for for maybe being a little bit too open and too vulnerable with that side of himself. So you really can't judge Phil for that, you know, but he, he also tortures people mm-hmm. around him um, emotionally. So I think that's why it's a lot easier to feel so devastated in the end of the movie because you just want Phil to be happy and to not torture people. Yeah. <laughs> but he does. Um, so it leaves you with this really conflicted feeling, which I, I really like sitting with. Yeah. And, thinking about like the best kind of art this film encourages interpretation and Mm -hmm. phil i mean how i interpret it i think phil doesn't even think of himself as gay I think mm-hmm. he is so in denial that he has channeled that confusion into complete rage. Mm-hmm. And perhaps he thinks of Bronco Henry the way that Jack and Ennis thought of each other, of like, oh, this is just a one-time thing. I'm no queer. I'm not gay. I just have love for this person. But I would never have fantasies about other any other man but you. So, But the thing is, we never get a, a flashback about Phil in the film, and we never see Bronco Henry. He is always a memory. Which is such a good call right? by Jane Campion. We really don't need that to understand. I love the physicality of how they bring Bronco Henry into the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, they not only tell these sort of legendary tales of Bronco Henry, but they have these homages the things that he physically left behind, like things that were clearly, that he used every day, like his yeah, saddle. saddle. I love that there are those little hearts on his saddle. There yeah. is the moment with his initials on a scarf mm-hmm. that Phil keeps on him at all time. In his crotch. In his crotch. Yeah. I actually, I was going to say, I don't think that we've introduced any of the actors. My apologies to all of them because I think they're, some of my favorite actors of all time. I've always been obsessed with Jesse Plemons. I think yeah. everyone knows this from the podcast. If but... you've seen Game Night, you, you'll you be obsessed with Jesse Plemons. Well, and I, I also, in our Spiderhead episode, I said that Jesse Plemons is the only good thing about Friday Night Lights. <laughs> <laughs> Not only, I mean, he's funny, he's but he's so multifaceted. And something that I read in an interview that I really like is he's an actor who really focuses on realism. Right. And I think that he was the perfect cast for George, who, again, is Phil's brother. Phil is played really multidimensionally by Benedict Cumberbatch. Interesting casting choice. Right. But I think one that really paid off. Oh, yeah. And another, I think, really great casting, who also, I think, really has, in her recent roles, striven for that realism, is Kirsten Dunst who is, I, I've like, 
obsessively followed the relationship between her and Jesse Plemons. I think they're yeah. like the perfect couple. Real life married I, couple. They I have fan two, girl over them. two sons. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also saw Kirsten Dunst one time at the Troubadour oh. at a concert, which is kind of cool. Cool. Um, shout out to our friend Kirsten Dunst, friend of the pod, Kirsten Dunst. What's up, Kay? <laughs> Katie, KDP. Yeah. I don't know. Cody Smith McPhee plays Peter, who I am entranced by. Yeah. He does such an incredible job in this role. He not only disappears emotionally, but like in terms of physicality is literally like nails exactly what is in the book. I even noticed there's this one part where the book describes the zipper sound of like when he's walking and his Mm -hmm. jeans are so new in comparison to like a rancher or something. And he's so stiff when he walks that his pants sort of zip, you know, that sound Mm -hmm. when you're walking in jeans. And they literally put that in the movie. Yeah. And I think that really demonstrates the kind. I even read that Jane Campion hired a movement coach to direct a lot of the specific character movements. All four of the performances we just mentioned were all nominated for Oscars. Well deserved. Yeah. I guess we kind of got off course. I was going to say another... Well, you're talking about movement and there's a great little behind the scenes documentary on Netflix about this movie called Behind the Scenes with Jane Campion. And she does this great thing with her actors where she takes them to a space or where the scene is going to take place and she just lets them walk around and exist in there. You don't, not saying anything, just kind of getting acquainted there and focusing on how the character would just exist and breathe in an environment. And these are the type of little things that directors do to get these Oscar-nominated performances. Like we said before, she won Best Director for this movie. And if you watch this documentary, you can see why. She just she knows how to speak to actors in a way that's beyond of just like, say the line like this. or say It's more about existing in a space. It's more about how do you naturally react. Like, there's a lot of improv involved in it, too. And speaking of Jesse Plemons, I think he does this the best, where he totally feels like a real person. He accomplishes the actor's goal, which is to disappear into the role. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem like he's acting, which Mm -hmm. is great. Benedict Cumberbatch, on the other hand, one of the greatest performances of the year is the opposite, very bombastic and large, but that's what the character is about. Mm. He, uh, Phil Burbank is literally acting. Yeah. Like that, that's his whole deal mm-hmm. is that he's putting on a front, a masculine front because he's hiding his true self. And also he's beyond hiding his true self. He also is just has uh, an ego problem. Mm-hmm. The only reason why he's lashing out at Rose is because he doesn't want his brother to be happy. And he doesn't want his brother to be happy because he can't be happy. So he's like, if he's seeing love right in front of him, like two feet in front of him, I mean, that's part of a reason why you feel a little, you feel bad for Phil a little bit. He's still the villain and he's still a terrible, toxic person who deserved to die. But... The magic trick of the movie is that through all of this, you're still like, oh man, poor Phil. Like that, you feel it when he's in the river taking out Bronco Henry's handkerchief or scarf mm. and just putting it on his face. And, and he's in a state of zen and you can just feel the heartbreak knowing that he will never 
have this love in his life. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I don't know if he deserves to die in the end of the movie. I don't know if he deserves to die. Well, it was either him but... or Rose. It could, yeah, it was. I, I, so no, I know, I know, but it's it's tough to think kill about him, it. Kill him, kill them all. <laughs> um, no, but but you're totally right. What what a way to honor Jane Campion's work of getting that kind of genuine reaction out of Jesse Plemons. Cody Smith McPhee and especially Kirsten Dunst, who is just this like raw, yeah, reactionary, sad. She feels <laughs> like an injured deer yeah. out in the woods, completely helpless. George isn't necessarily negligent, but he doesn't, I think, have the you know emotional intelligence to really support his wife. And Rose isn't, it's not that it's like a passionless marriage, but it clearly, there clearly isn't like a fiery spark between them, right? Or, or, or George loves Rose, and I bet Rose loves George, but it's not like this passion, like, you know what I'm... Well, I think, I think they understand each other's loneliness. Yeah. I think they do have a beautiful relationship. Like, maybe not... I mean, but even in the movie, they have sex. Right. So I feel like they have a really wonderful emotional and physical connection. Here, Here's my take on it. George and Phil have been seminal characters. They are dependent on each other. They're in the middle of nowhere. As much as Phil makes George's life miserable, he calls him fatso, he calls him stupid... Right. He, on the surface, does not respect George very much. because yeah, both in the book and the movie, George flunked out of college. Right. And whereas Phil went to Yale. So as much as Phil makes George's life miserable, I believe that in the beginning, the fact that Phil is begging George to celebrate the 25 years that they've been through together in this really harsh environment demonstrates that he is also very respectful of how different George can be. I think he sees George as someone that he he wants to like emulate George's vulnerability because for as much as George isn't schooled, he can be vulnerable. You know, Phil can hide behind his education and also sort of the contrasting like rancher hand where he speaks, you know, oh, I don't clean up, you know, yeah. those sort of things. He can hide behind those contrasting personas, but I think that he sees George and he's jealous because he can't be vulnerable like George can be. Right. He can't share himself with anyone because Bronco Henry is gone. So I think that there's a respect between both brothers. And I think really the breaking point is like what you were saying earlier, when Phil sees George start to share himself with someone else, the power dynamic completely flips. And I think Phil sees that power, especially through George, just being completely stolen. He doesn't have power over George anymore. And that's where I think like his, he, he lashes out at Rose because he sees that Rose has taken that like focus mm -hmm. from him. And so I think that is another reason that we start to feel sympathy for Phil or empathy because Phil is nothing without George. Like, he's already lost Uncle Henry, so, like, what is he going to do when George... And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, too, but the timing of when this story takes place is so important because this was a time in American history when the American West, the open West, where, you know, quote-unquote, undiscovered, which obviously we know is bullshit because... 
people had been living there. Indigenous people had been living in the Americas for 10,000 years or more. But that sort of manifest destiny was coming to an end because there were so many immigrants from the East Coast, white immigrants from the East Coast that were taking over land that like the rugged individualism of America was being left behind. And I think that Phil sees that and he's like, that's all that I have to hide behind. So if my brother has like one foot in the future and is leaving these 25 years behind and saying, I don't need them anymore, where is my future? Like, where do I fit into that future? I can't be vulnerable and say, you know, I wanna be forward looking because this is all I have now. You know, I've clung mm-hmm. to it for so long. So that, again, I think that just shows like how sympathetic we can be toward Phil in that situation. Like he's losing everything. He's already lost Bronco Henry. Like what else does he have? Right, nothing. And then, which is why we can talk about it later, but when a relationship starts to blossom between him and Peter, which is why it starts to seem you chill for a bit Mm. while watching the film and start to feel good for both of the men. Yeah, it's so sad to watch that because, like, you want Phil to be happy, but you're also conflicted because you're like, is he grooming Peter? Like, that's gross. Yeah. But also then you realize like how cold hearted Peter <laughs> Peter yeah. is like how feeling he is toward his mother. And we get a little bit of resolution to George and Rose's relationship by the end because they share like a private moment. They kiss um, after Phil Phil's funeral. But goddamn, like Peter just reeled fill in and what's so impressive is that it's all in character it it yeah. never feels like a betrayal of trust right as as a viewer you don't feel like a fast one has been pulled on you no. like you've been cheated out because oh well let's go with the facts here peter is someone who hunts down animals and dissects them i'm not saying that he's a psychopath but there are some clear indications of maybe he's a little bit more comfortable with well with he's this clinical of... yeah like he's been taught to be clinical toward yeah toward subjects he... like he's in school to become a doctor right. like his father yeah right yeah so perhaps his um what is it apathy and and empathy is a little bit not delayed but less than than a normal person but like for other people for his family obviously he is protecting them yeah it's it's almost like he has gone into like predator mode yeah where like he sees his mom as someone that needs to be protected and so he's gone into like complete predator and you can see that the second time around the first time around you're like he is prey and the first half of the movie you you're thinking phil is you're like is he going to kill peter yeah that was my first impression when he started to warm up to peter i was like peter no don't fall for this but that was that's how well the movie tricks you into not seeing who's really in power right um i actually just put something together too because i was reading another interview with the i think the production designer and and jane campion and maybe the cinematographer but what they were saying was phil's chaps became such a pivotal part of who his character is because they're like this like sheepskin fluffy like very dirty piece of his costume and as much as they talked about phil being like part animal Mm -hmm. and how that piece of his costume furthered that character trait i also realized like he is a sheep and Mm -hmm. he kind of does get like 
if you look at it on the surface, you could say like, oh, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, if you think about what happens in the end, Peter is the wolf, which is kind of funny too. He ends up hunting Phil and Phil becomes like the sacrificial lamb because Peter is so devoted to his mother yeah. and her happiness. I just thought of that. Like he's definitely, he ends up becoming like a, a sheep, a sacrificial sheep for Peter's mom, her, her happiness. Or like, I mean, like a, the cows, maybe a sacrificial but cow. But he's wearing sheepskin. Oh, interesting. So he's okay. the sacrificial lamb. And like, that's also very biblical. Yes. So I feel like that again, like on the surface, it's like, oh, he's a, he, you know, is kind of like luring Peter. So he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but he's not. He ends up just, just being a sacrificial lamb. Gotcha. Yeah. A character trait that's similar between the book and the movie is that Peter has a lisp. Mm. And uh, in the audiobook that I listened to, the narrator did not put a lisp on Peter, which I thought was odd because it's, I would say very integral to his character because Phil makes fun of it. Yeah. So it's a big deal. Cody Smith McPhee expertly, I think he does it. It would have been easy to go uh, too far with it. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the movie, it's very subtle and works perfectly. I want to make a note about Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. A family member of ours has stated that he or she did not believe uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in the role of this cowboy he seemed seems too stiff and the accent's not quite right and i would just say my response to that is what we were talking about earlier is that phil is not this person that he's projecting Mm -hmm. to be he's not actually he feel he is outside of his skin and he clearly is a scholar and he wants to like stand tall and you know be comfortable with his sexuality but he can't given the environment the story takes place in 1920s montana this is not a time for that so i think it actually works in benedict cumberbatch's favor that he's perhaps like non-american and he he doesn't really hold himself like a typical cowboy would yeah the other thing i love about this conversation is like how much the image of the American cowboy was never really a reality, right? And a lot of cow herders were not actually American. A lot of them were from Central America, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting that Phil has decided that this is the most masculine that he can be, because I also feel like during that time period, this is what Americans wanted to believe was like a masculine image, but it, it never really was. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's not like I think we talked about it in the Brokeback Mountain episode, too. Like even during the 1960s, when that story is taking place, it felt like the cowboy image was also sort of disappearing. But then we say, well, even in the 1920s, was that real? Was that ever a real thing? Because even Phil is imitating something that he wants so badly to be true mm-hmm. because he he saw that in Bronco Henry. And I think a lot of the the reason that he's become this, like he has this bravado is because he, I think he saw Bronco Henry probably doing the same thing. And he's like, well, everyone I'm surrounded by also thinks that he was a legend. And if I can take on that imagery too, um, I was, I was going to mention that I forgot the, the costumer, for this movie her name is christy cameron and she talked about how these people would have been quote-unquote catalog cowboys 
which mm. I love. So they're able to curate their image because they have money. And gotcha. so what they would have done is gone through like a Sears and Roebuck catalog. And like, you can literally see Phil going through that and being like, well, this might make me look more masculine or like, this is what I see my ranch hands wearing. So I want to match that mm-hmm. image. So I'm going to order something from like the East Coast, right? Because they're from the East Coast. I just thought that was such an interesting concept, a catalog cowboy. And for someone like Phil to be ordering like jeans and chaps and a cowboy hat and like denim because he thought that was the image of what people would have seen. Like, can you imagine like Ennis and Jack seeing a picture of, you know, Phil and being like, well, that's a real cowboy. That's what I want to emulate. I want to wear denim and chaps and cowboy boots and cowboy hats. I just thought that was such an interesting concept of a catalog cowboy. Definitely. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard about that. Thanks for talking about that. Another difference between the book and the movie that I wanted to bring up was the dinner with the governor and the governor's wife. Yeah, it's it's smartly condensed with the visit from their parents in the movie. Right, yeah, the movie, exactly, the movie puts those two dinners into one, where the parents coming and then the governor and the governor's wife. So in the book, Phil does not show up at all to the governor's dinner. And I think the scary thing about that, the most impactful thing about that, is even with Phil not there, Rose still cannot play. And she realizes in the moment, she doesn't know exactly what's going on uh, in the weeks leading up to the dinner, but in the moment she realizes she can't play because Phil has been slowly tormenting her every time she tries to practice. And then the movie takes it a step further where Phil has a conversation with George before the dinner, where George is like, where, where are you? Are you going to show up? And Phil is still mad at George for telling him to wash up for the governor and the governor's wife and uh, their parents, that he is offended and says he won't show up. But he does show up as the governor and the governor's wife are about to leave and mocks Rose even more, really driving the nail of embarrassment into the coffin there you by You didn't af- play? Right? Well, you sure been practicing an awful lot. Yeah. Oh my god. When he's that saying just... like you're probably tired from dancing, you didn't dance, you didn't play. Yeah. It... That that would drive me to drinking. And yeah. sure enough, Rose takes a big she like shoots the orange blossom yep. that George has made. Yeah, that's oh, that's an hour into the film. The first drink Rose takes is halfway through the film. And I think I think the uh, time flies by pretty well in the film. The editing is by Peter Skabaras, and who also did the editing for a really underrated Netflix movie called The King with Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet and Robert Pattinson. Yep. He and oh, uh, my brother Tim, past guest on the pod as well. He loves The King, so you know, shout out to The King. But yeah, so the timeline for both. The main story for both the book and the movie is about a year, right? It's when George meets Rose and then Peter is about to go off to college. And then when, when Peter comes back for the spring summer before his next next year in college, that's when they have the whole interaction with Phil. So really most of the story, the second half is those final three months of summer. And I think things progress in a very natural way. It's very quick in the book, even more so. I'd, I'd say another huge difference is that the making of the rope. So Phil 
goes... The diseased rope. Right. The fateful diseased rope. Phil goes absolutely crazy when he realizes that Rose donated the hides. Phil goes absolutely crazy when he realizes that Rose donated the hides. And that was such a touching and sad scene in the movie when Kirsten Dunst is begging the guy to take the hides because Phil's just going to burn them anyways. And the dad, played by Adam Beach. Yeah, from Smoke Signals, which hopefully we'll cover, I think, on the pod. And he gives her the gloves. And she is so touched by this moment of kindness and human connection that she, you know, literally crumbles to the ground. And when Phil realizes it that's when johnny greenwood's amazing score kicks in Mm -hmm. with the you know the violins and and the strings really plucking super hard it's incredible he plucks a cello like a banjo yeah is what he described it as which is like really cool yeah both in the book and the movie are incredible you know when he's like screaming like because they're mine and yeah george had prompted him like what's the harm and it's not that phil needed all the hides because he could have used just one more to finish the rope it's that it was his only one thing of control like he needs to send a message to everyone that he does stuff because he's the main man in charge and if he wants to burn the hides then he'll burn the hides if he wants to use one of the hides for a rope that's what's going to happen so someone stepping on his toes is like game over Yeah, that is another uh, deviation a little bit from the book. There's a father and son who want to go camping to go visit the father's father's grave. And we don't get that in the movie. I think it's probably a smart cut because we still get the emotional, like you were talking about, like the human connection that Rose has been missing because she's just on this ranch by herself being emotionally abused by... Mm-hmm. Phil. There, there is a scene of Phil personally coming upon the father and son camping. And he, like you said, he it's his land. And he sends them home, even though they're like a couple miles away or something. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to let you through. And then Rose, I guess, meets them on their way home, actually to the reservation when she sells them the hides. And it's just it's devastating but i don't know if we need that whole thing it just furthers like how evil phil is yeah i i would say the whole backstory of that family was the only point in the book where i think it was a little like we didn't need all that i'm not saying remove it entirely sure but it did seem like a big enough deviation where i'm like can we get back we, on we track? Went, we went back to it, I think, like three separate times yeah. throughout the narrative. So it was like maybe a little bit of a distraction, yeah. Um, if right. anything could have been cut, it probably could have been that. But but it's really devastating when she goes after them. But then when Peter offers oh. Phil the hide, the first watch, at that point you both think, wow, now Peter has completely 180'd and now likes Phil. Yeah. And it only is until the second watch when you realize, no, he has always been on this mission. And he's nervous to finally start to go to the end game here of like, take my hide, my diseased hide. Yeah. And you can see him hyping himself up outside the barn before he's like, am I really going to do this? Yeah. Am I really going to like kill yeah. Phil? <laughs> kill Bill. Kill Phil. Yeah. So that's where the nervousness comes through. Which is why it's so brilliant, because the first time you can interpret it as, oh, wow, Peter actually, he's really touched by Phil's anger and really wants to help him out. Nope. Well, see, and this is where one of my, 
the first time we watched it, I was so conflicted because I was like, you know, so clearly the way that I have read this movie is that Phil is so clearly gay and I'm so confused why Peter would kill him. Like, is he reacting to Phil's queerness? Like, why Why in the world is would he have killed Phil? Like, that's where I was so confused by the end. And I was like, am I going to have to, like, go to bat for, like, yeah. you know, violence against queer people? Like, I was just so confused. But then, like, the realization that Peter might have come to really identify with Phil's plight. Like, yeah. I'm not going to speculate on Peter's sexuality, but I think that he has this tenderness in him to understand that at least Phil is not being completely honest about who he is. We do get an, a scene in the movie where Peter stumbles across Phil, not only naked and sort of, I don't think masturbating at all, but he's clearly sort of like enjoying himself and yeah. like being just this like naked, natural being. And he comes across some male pornography that I think like surprises him, but I think he's able to make the connection that maybe Phil isn't being quite honest with himself. And I think he like just because of the way that his character's been set up, like he is, you know, he enjoys making paper flowers and he understands how hard it is to be yourself and, and to have the lisp in the face of people like Phil who are making fun of him constantly to see that Peter might really identify with Phil in that way of like, I don't feel like I can be completely myself either. Again, regardless of sexuality, the Herculean decision oh. to kill him is like so devastating. And I think I like that you pointed out that moment of like, am I really going to do it? Like he's, he leaves the barn and like has this internal struggle of I either do it right now or maybe I don't do it at all. Um, maybe I just hide that hide because I don't know if I can go through with it. That moment I think really shows that he's, he's come to almost love Phil as an uncle right, or an uncle-in-law, which interestingly is Phil was based on Thomas Savage's uncle-in-law. Right. So that relationship you can kind of speculate on, I guess, a little bit. But it's a really tough moment <laughs> to, yeah. watch, to watch Peter struggle with that. But, you know, he always had his mother's best interest in mind because I think he also can see that, again, this is all interpretation, but I think that Peter is sensitive enough to understand that his mother really has to struggle to be happy because of like the female plight in the American West, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like what else were you expected to be other than a prostitute basically? So I think he can see a that. Maid. Or a maid, um, <laughs> which she is. Right. And I think that he can see that his mother is worth so much more that she can't even see that within herself, but he is able to defend that, and then eventually bring everything that he wants to give her into fruition mm -hmm. by removing the obstacle that is Phil, which is sort of how his dad raised him before he died, is mm -hmm. like, life is about removing obstacles. So anyway, I've just ranted for a few minutes. Oh, the opposite <laughs> of a rant. A pointed <sighs> lecture. Yeah, it is a lecture, though. No, but <laughs> one that you didn't let me finish. Okay. One that I love sitting in on i'm in the front row see me after class <laughs> that's what you say um, wanted to continue on this discussion because another huge difference is that in the book once peter offers the extra hide that he has there's a one sentence where it says phil worked all night on the rope and then the next thing you see is that phil doesn't make it to breakfast and he's sick 
and then they cart him off, and then he's dead. Yeah. The film and Jane Campion, they wisely add a scene where Peter watches and is with Phil during it's their so rope making. It's so chilling. It oh. is oddly sensual in the sense that mm. there are insert shots of Phil's hands like inserting ropes into mm-hmm. certain holes and mm-hmm. pulling it out. It's very, I mean, the sound and design. And Peter is kind of like feeling the horn of Bronco Henry's saddle in a yeah, very stro- suggestive, yeah, he strokes it. He doesn't just feel it, he's stroking it. it. Which we should say, Phil taking out Bronco Henry's saddle and stroking it and waxing it. That's and not, sitting on it. And sitting on it. Um, that's not in the book. Mm-hmm. either straddling it i should say straddling oh boy does he do sexual. that yeah um, yeah so you could clearly see that both men are like playing off each other and testing each other they don't know if like one's trying to seduce the other or they don't know if one is trying to get a one up on mm-hmm. the other it's this kind of they're both very soft spoken and testing out the waters of like what's going on here i've read certain interpretations that say that they think that the two men like made love in the barn i disagree with that read well i mean yeah the point is is that the scene ends right midway through which you're supposed to do right like as soon as the point is made leave the scene so any interpretation is valid it it could be something crazy it is valid i mean again peter's sexuality is never discussed but it's never confirmed so he, he could be Right? I, 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 personally, I personally don't see that there's enough evidence to argue that. Well, but... I think, uh, right, exactly. There, there is no conclusive evidence. There's not even, I would say, substantial evidence. But something that is very suggestive to maybe not Peter's sexuality, but to what Phil thinks Peter's sexuality is is the scene when they're looking on the hillsides uh, to see what the, the shadows are. And Phil is starting to go in this long, lofty story. It's just like, Bronco Henry taught me to see things that others couldn't see. And then in the beginning of the film, all the ranch hands were like, what do you see out in those hills? It's like, well, once you know it, you'll see it, right? Phil takes Peter out. And this film is very funny on the second watch when mm, you, when you kind of know mm-hmm. what things are going. It's like we were laughing a lot. Yeah. And he's like asking him. He's just like, "Well, Bronco Henry taught me to see things that other people couldn't see in the hills. Like, what do you see?" And then Peter's like, "A dog." And then Phil is absolutely flabbergasted. Like, mm. you just saw that? You just saw that? Yeah. It, hilarious moment. But it's kind of like of saying, like, wait a second. You're like me. You're like, looking for things, right, that yeah. I look for. Like yeah. You're perhaps gay, too? Like, it, it's kind of, again, it is it's, not it is not said right out. It's one of Phil's most vulnerable moments. You're right. He's caught off guard, which Phil is not normally. But I think a big reason why Phil takes such a liking to Peter is he's starting to see himself a lot in Peter. He's seeing some signs. So, again, a lot of signs point to Peter being gay. But the argument could be made the other way, which my, is my argument is that maybe Peter is acting the way that he believes the filth wants him wants to see him act. But to, but he was also acting in cer- I mean, quote unquote traditionally feminine see, ways that, earlier. But that's that I think that's an assumption that I think Peter just may be acting 
the way that he likes to act. And I don't think like, like as much as we can say that like, oh, he likes to make paper flowers. He's also a surgeon. I think that that speaks to the detailed nature of his character. So I don't think that assigning the traditional male, you know, actions that he doesn't portray. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that we should be looking into those things to assert that he's gay. I think that what he sees that Phil does is read people's characters and Phil is so confident that what he sees is right. Phil doesn't, he, he's so confident that he sees so many things that people don't see mm-hmm. that he his read on everything is correct. I think that a more nuanced read of Peter is that he sees that and he's like, if I queer code in the way that Phil expects to see someone queer coding, he will start to trust me. And that's the way that I can sort of start to put these little pieces into place that I can then pull the strings. I don't think that there's enough to suggest that he's not smart enough to like act in a way no, that well, Phil uh, wants th- to see. Uh, but the thing is, I agree with you though. I'm not asserting anything. He could be putting on a show or he could be like projecting these parts of him out. Like he could either be twisting it and putting on a full performance or like half of a performance. But I'm not asserting anything. But, but I, I again, see again I, I still think that saying like, oh, he, he likes to make paper flowers, he's gay. I yeah. sort of take offense to that. I'm not saying that you're saying that. But I think if people are going to come to the yes, table and I'm say that this is my evidence. Gosh, I want to make it clear I, right now to everyone listening that that's not. I'm not saying that you're saying that. I'm saying that if peop, if someone came to an argument with me and said that they think that he's projecting that he's gay purely because he's quote-unquote effeminate, which I don't like that word, but I think that people use that as an excuse to argue that he's gay, I would say, actually, I think he's a very detail-oriented person, and I think that he reads how Phil reads people, he picks up on that, he wants to switch the power dynamic, so he acts the way that Phil assumes he should to queer code. So that's my read on it. Yeah, just talking about Peter could be its own own podcast but we have more story to tell so i was talking about how the film adds that scene and there's a pivotal revelation with phil talking about the night he was with bronco henry during a storm and in order to not freeze they both huddled together to play up each other's body heat and then peter has this line so you're naked Right? And he know. I mean, Peter knows they were... Na- it's like he's stoking the fire here. He's playing with the fire, mm-hmm. it, um, so to speak. It's just brilliant extra dialogue added, which is why it's just so frustrating how this lost best adapted screenplay to Coda, which again, great film, but best adapted screenplay? Come on. I don't, I don't <laughs> think that you can argue that like the subtleties... This movie, to our point, this movie was optioned twice after this book came out. I And it failed because of the complexity of projecting the subtleties of the book onto the screen. Mm-hmm. And I think that if had those adaptations been made, they would have failed. I don't think that there could have been this nuanced discussion about masculinity through anyone else at an earlier time. Right. So it's, and again, we're not shitting on Coda. It was a good movie, but it's so much harder to have a subtle conversation Mm -hmm. than to have one that's on its face. Uh, But again, like no shade. It's just, this is a different level of movie making. 
Yeah. I mean, to still stay on this point of Peter killing Phil, I think he had been repressing the memory of Phil in the book, uh, um, of Phil beating up and embarrassing his father, that he, like, honestly didn't put two and two together uh, emotionally until the end. So, again, in the book, you don't realize this. It's totally dropped on you until the last sentence. And the language is so that it's it's almost kind of playful. It's like, well, Phil died of anthrax, which Peter might have found in one of the books that his father had. So it's like a lot of suggestive language, but nothing conclusive. So there's even more reason, I think, in the book for Peter to kill Phil mm. as opposed to the movie. But other than that, in terms of differences, the book and movie are pretty much the same. Yeah, the the one thing I would say, too, is that a lot of the book is actually from it's like third person omniscient but pretty much from phil's perspective Mm -hmm. so we really get phil's read on situations and it's kind of sad like i think we get sort of like a dumber version of george because we see him from phil's perspective right that's a good point yeah and i think it's pivotal for the book that we see how toxic Phil, how else would we understand almost that Phil is this toxic unless we start to see him as an unreliable narrator? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, George can't be as stupid or unsuccessful as Phil portrays him to be because their ranch is very successful. Yeah. And, you know, even though Phil doesn't read the books or the classics or whatever that Phil can read or, you know, he didn't go to college I think we really start to see on like a second read that because we're hearing it from from Phil's perspective that we're not getting a really good image of any of these characters. Mm -hmm. So with that said, the movie didn't have to do that because we can sort of visualize like, for example, Phil's torture of Rose is so successful because he doesn't say anything to her. A lot of times it's just ignoring her. Right. Or it's the way that he leaves a door open that she's closed or the way that he finishes a tune that she can't quite finish on piano when really all she needs is like a few more practices and you can see that she's proficient enough, but because he's so smart, you know, he can like jump in on the banjo or start whistling that phrase, that musical phrase just to let her know that he's watching yeah. And those sorts of things I don't think would have come across as well if Thomas Savage didn't like put his trust in the reader to figure out that Phil is not a reliable narrator. But on yeah. the screen, it's like chilling. All we need to hear is a footstep from yeah. Phil. The or, sound or design the creak. on oh his my spurs, gosh. they're so loud and deafening and yeah. booming every step he takes. You feel it. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that, again, like... This is sort of the success of bringing a script to the silver screen. You can't do that as well, I think, without being able to visualize that and hear it. So again, as much as Thomas Savage is successful in creating that, that feeling of Phil's like ability to be this like specter around the house, like experiencing it on screen is really chilling. Yeah. Gosh, Benedict Cumberbatch is so great in this. And he we haven't seen King Richard, but we all know what happened at the Oscars with Will Smith 
the oh, hashtag the slap. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, we watched that live and we were just as shocked as everyone else. Like what the fuck yeah. happened? And then Will Smith went on to give an eight minute long rambling that acceptance speech, which is so probably the worst in history. Yeah, and it has that added element of it being super awkward and of like there was just assault on stage and then we're all that was such a that was literally a sobering moment like i was drunk yeah we were hosting an oscar party and i was having like a great time with my best friend allison and then suddenly like we're watching the screen and that happens and i was like i am fully sober and i still don't understand what happened like yeah. that it was like literally a sobering it's, moment yeah shocking it, truly it was so shocking and i mean akin to the power of the dog which is one person ruined their behavior ruining an entire event for everyone yeah what a fucking down like we were literally throwing a party and then as everyone is just like we were literally like announcing who had won the oscar pool and we're just like well like no one cares about yeah, anything that day, we're gonna <laughs> say you know at the end of this party like why do everyone can just go home in a sour mood because we're all just still scratching our heads at this like intensely violent moment that just happened on national television we don't have to like yeah i'm <laughs> we sure we don't have to add to the conversation it's been quite a quite i didn't months. like it uh chris rock, rock shouldn't have made the joke but will smith shouldn't have uh hit him <laughs> anyways a, yeah I, i'm whatever. sure his performance in king richard is incredible i mean will smith is an incredible actor we haven't seen it that's right right that's you, you, yeah you said that yeah but benedict cumberbatch i mean come on come on especially when he has uh, a history of not doing the best american accent i mean his yeah. accent in doctor strange couldn't be it's almost it's the least american accent from a british actor i've ever heard would, in my life i would argue that tom holland oh, in, also drops the ball on his in civil accent, war but, but you haven't seen well, you have seen the other ones and he didn't mm -mm. comedy yes you have you've seen infinity war and endgame we saw it in theaters okay well i thought you were talking about homecoming and like the spider-man movies i haven't seen oh, those. oh you no, you've seen far from home you have seen them. <laughs> whatever i wasn't impressed it's whatever. point is we want our well, boy ben to and honestly, speaking of non-Americans doing American accents, Cody Smith McPhee, I yeah, had no Australian. clue was Australian yeah. until we started looking into him. What a talent. Because yeah. honestly, like even the way that he says like, sure, like his R's are American. <laughs> yeah. So, and also shout out to Keith Carradine, a big character actor, part of the Carradine family. Theme. Who does he play? He plays the governor the governor oh. he's oh, there for a scene so. yeah his brother uh was bill in kill bill i haven't seen that anyways shout out to keith so final thoughts and final ratings for the book and the movie i actually have a lot of like fun and final thoughts that i probably should have said earlier but we were moving so fast that i skipped over them so i'm gonna share a few okay i wanted to shout out evelyn cameron's photography she was an English citizen who moved to the Montana outback in the 1820s okay. and documented it through photography. Cool. And they used her photography as well as Ken Burns program, the West gotta to create, love boy Ken. gotta love a good Ken Burns program. So I was just going to mention their like inspiration on this movie, just because they had to transplant the American West to the South Island of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just because like, can you imagine being an English female photographer on the, you know, Montana Western wilderness? I, I that's, can't. that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so I just wanted to say that they helped create that feel of 1920s Montana. I 
wanted to mention that the production designer Grant Major based the the house, the Burbank house, on Sagamore Hill, the infamous Roosevelt property in New York. And his inspiration came from the idea that they were coming from the East Coast during the 1890s and moved to the West during that time. Mm -hmm. So it would have been really believable that the parents would have gotten their inspiration from the Roosevelt property because they were of that like social crust, upper social crust. I thought that was like so smart. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I also got all of these fun facts for the most part from Netflix's Q magazine, (laughs) which is actually kind of a, it's not very good. Interesting. But (laughs) I thought I'd give them a shout out. For the most part, it's actually like, really a bad magazine but i've been sort of picking through the sludge for some fun facts um i don't think that i mentioned how smart i think it was for johnny greenwood to use strings in the score because you literally have to tighten strings to put them in tune and i thought that that was like such a smart way of like reflecting the tension as much as like, you know, quote unquote, like nothing really happens in this kind of film, mm-hmm. the score can really like up the tension just by like, you think about yeah, how like you can smothering. tighten this. Yeah. Um, I loved that. Oh, another thing, speaking of music, I think it's so interesting that Phil plays the banjo because, and not only does he play the banjo, something we didn't even talk about at all was his ability to whittle this miniature furniture. That's well, talked yeah. about in both the book and yeah. the movie. And as random as that seems, I started to lump it in with his ability to play music and what an artistic person Phil is. And I started to think, like, how dare he attack Peter for for his ability to make these beautiful paper flowers? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, how dare he? That's that's such an artistic expression. And for Phil to view that as or for anyone to like interpret that as effeminate was like very frustrating to me because i think like again phil is artistic but he's choosing things that people can still interpret as masculine like whittling and and playing the banjo you know it's not like like he i think he probably would see the piano as as feminine so he probably wouldn't play piano um but to build his character he, he you know he does those two artistic things and i i just think that's like an interesting thing that we didn't really get to talk about I love, we talked about this a little bit, but like George's ability to be vulnerable, the moment when he starts crying with Rose when they're on that picnic, like makes me want to cry because, oh my gosh. That's his Oscar nomination moment. A hundred percent. Like you really believe those tears. And when we talked about him like going after that realism in act you you believe that he's crying and he's looking at his wife like it's so beautiful i just love that so much um and he's also completely immune to phil's bullshit like i love that he ignores everything that phil says to him that's like mean there's that moment when he comes home after spending time with rose and phil kind of goes into this like bullshit moment and he goes well (laughs) i'm off to bed (laughs) um i just love his ability to like you know take phil's bullshit and like completely neutralize it right amazing oh uh so speaking of this is perfect to segue between like phil and george i also read that jane campion actually asked jesse plemons and benedict cumberbatch to like the first day of of rehearsal they 
were given a dance instructor and they actually mm. danced together, which <laughs> she thought would be a really good way of not only like making a, an emotional connection between the actors, but also making a physical connection because we see them like literally sleeping in the same bed. And so she wanted them to like share physical space mm-hmm. and understand like, you know, these people have grown up together. They're like completely intrinsic to each other's lives. And I thought that was like such a beautiful way of making like a physical connection between actors like what a what an amazing idea by a director that that two people should dance together and specifically that benedict cumberbatch should be the lead and jesse plemons was to be his follower because that was the power dynamic between them so they also kind of learned that like that physical power dynamic oh so brilliant also everyone stayed in character on set and i read an interview with kirsten dunst that Benedict Cumberbatch did not speak a single word to her during filming. Wow. Which is just shocking. But then, like, during breaks, you know, they'd go out and spend time with each other. Both of them moved to New Zealand for a while with their children. So, like, Mm. they'd, like, have personal moments together, but then on set would not talk, which really, like, I think ratcheted up that tension that we saw between their characters. Yeah, it's hard to emulate that energy, that tension, without actually having it exist. For sure. In in reality. Yeah. I don't know if we... The last thing I I wrote down was, like, I don't know if we want to get into, like, the conversation of, like, Sam Elliott and the way that, like, Jane Campion talks about gender. Yeah, like, all that stuff, I I think hopefully we can set aside because it is kind of a distraction. Yeah. Um, it's It's really unfortunate that those things kind of tainted the conversation, especially about masculinity, because I think it like proves the point that we still can't have those conversations and be comfortable in having them. Yeah. It's so frustrating that like people don't think that gender can be like fluid enough and inclusive enough to just be a singular person. People, people have to sort of like use gender to define what people should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Like that is what the movie's about. And I, I sort of feel right. like those two people, unfortunately kind of tainted that message. Um, hopefully people can watch the movie and separate that conversation out of it, mm-hmm. sort of tease it out of it. But it's it's just kind of indicative of, you know, why it maybe didn't win Best Picture. People are still uncomfortable with these with having these conversations. It's yeah. It's a bummer. But those are my yeah, final best thoughts. Best picture in our thoughts, right? Best four picture out of four in our mind. For both. Absolutely four. And and honestly for the for the book as well. I know they were a little bit there were some deviations, but I just, I guess I'm sort of like late to the train of, wow, Thomas Savage is a great writer. I, I think it's great. I think it was just so, so understated that I, I can't give it more than a three, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I've just, I've read so many bad books. Sure. And then something like this comes along. And while there are a few flaws, it's just, it was just so enjoyable. And I read it so quickly because I was just completely taken yeah. with it. It's hard to write a book like that. I couldn't do it. Uh, so. Oh, yeah. It's hard to... I The patience that Thomas Savage and the trust oh, he yeah. must have had to save the mic drop for the final line. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, so I think... Should we read the final line as our closing moment? Sure. It's powerful. Let's do it. Read it. All right, here it is. You ready? Yeah. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. And then also he goes on to say, please rate and review, subscribe if you haven't Follow. already. Follow. Leave a yeah, leave a, a good five star, please. That's 
five star <laughs> review. That's a direct quote from Thomas Savage. Yeah, he said it. <laughs> he said it. So you have to listen. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Hey, listeners, we are coming to you with our first special alert insert. (laughs) Big news. This is big news. Yeah. So the day after we recorded our Power of the Dog episode, Danny, I think, right, you were scrolling through your soaps. (laughs) Instagram, yeah. Through Instagram. And we found out that Criterion Collection has announced that Power of the Dog will be added to their catalog. This is big news because rarely do streaming movies get added to Criterion. Criterion is a collection of movies um, that the Criterion uh, committee picks uh, that they deem worthy. Uh, They're usually very highly critically acclaimed films or films that are hard to come by, uh, international films. And they re-release them with a higher 4K digital transfer. They also feature extensive behind-the-scenes footage that never before seen. So this is a big deal. It's coming out November 8th of this year. So we're very excited about it. Please, please buy a copy when it comes out. You can pre-order now, but it'll yeah. be available everywhere at November. And honestly, I think that Barnes & Noble is still running a 50% off Criterion collection they do that like three times a year, yeah. yeah. I think I think by the time it comes out, the sale will still be ongoing. This title might not be 50% off, but if you keep your eyes out, you might get lucky. Yeah. Be able to get this on, on Criterion DVD or Blu-ray, and or Blu-ray. Yeah. So that's right. it. Well, that's it. That's a special report. All righty. See you on the next one. <laughs>